Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. It is a beautiful Monday morning here in Washington, D.C., and I am currently getting everything ready to head over to Lagos, Nigeria for a two-week trip. I'm super excited to be back on the continent. It's been a while, but I have some great content planned while I'm there. Uh, and we'll be speaking at the Africa Fintech Summit on November 8th at the Lagos Civic Center. And so if you're in town, be sure to stop by. Uh, today's episode is accordingly a great one on startups in Africa, as I am joined by Johnny Keelagard, the founder of Growth Africa. Since starting, Johnny and his team have helped to accelerate 152 startups in East Africa, with $42 million in total venture capital being raised by the companies that have gone through their accelerator. In this conversation, we dive deeper into themes that we've touched on before, including the somewhat broken pipeline of early stage deal flow in Africa, as well as the interesting topic of the untapped potential in secondary cities in Africa's major markets. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Johnny Keelagard, the CEO of Growth Africa, and be sure to tune in next week when I'll be coming to you live from Lagos, Nigeria. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So, Johnny, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you here on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your story to kick us off and uh, I guess, you know, h- how you initially made your way to Africa? Well, it, it is a long story, but I'll, I'll try and keep it short. I accidentally found myself in East Africa in the late 90s after having uh, completed my studies and completed uh, a stint with uh, the student organization ISIC. Uh, where I ended up um, together with a team heading off the, the international department. And that exposed me to, to a lot of different areas across the globe. Uh, and I found that East Africa was particularly interesting. So I found myself there in the, in the late 90s. And uh, even though I'm, uh, my background is in economics and banking, uh, everyone back in the 90s were doing dot-com stuff, the original dot-com boom. I started up an IT company. Uh, initially in Uganda, this was back in the day where uh, VCs were throwing money after literally everything. We found a really good VC to to back us up, uh, took that IT company across uh, eight countries in Africa, as well as into Asia, into Bangladesh, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, and Nepal. And then in, in 2001, uh, the dot-com bubble burst and then towards the the first half in the first half of 2002 in the middle of 2002 i kind of found myself in nairobi with pretty much just the shirt on my back but with four years of of great entrepreneurial experience and exposure to a wonderful continent with lots and lots of opportunities and that is when i started up growth africa that's a, a bit more than 16 years ago and ever since we've been trying to figure out how can we assist other entrepreneurs in in kind of hacking their entrepreneurial experience on the continent. So I'd be curious to hear about how the VC community viewed uh, tech in Africa back during the first dot-com boom, because it's, it, it seems like it's starting to become a hotter topic right now amongst VCs. Uh, but what sort of questions or 
uh, like what was the perception of, of startups uh, in, in Africa back during the first dot-com boom? Yeah, I, I think um, we it was much more of a curiosity back then than it is today. So I think what what we kind of and and I think that is true for a lot of the IT companies back in in the mid and late nineties. What they won venture capital uh, folks over on was kind of the novelty of Africa and, and the fact that it had that allure and mystique and 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 was very a very exotic thing to to do i think another thing that uh, so we we kind of became a part of a larger group and what we were uh, more or less a guarantor of was that uh, we were as a group of it companies we were a very kind of a, a sexy a value proposition for a lot of the the talent that was that was um, being attracted by by the other companies an opportunity to go to these very exotic destinations in Africa and in Asia to train colleagues, local colleagues there, have a flair for for another culture, um, have that opportunity to to enrich your work life with with those things. I think those are some of the conversations that that we were having with with VCs because they could see that that there was something there. They had no idea what, but no one was questioning a whole lot back then because people simply hadn't kind of learned what could and what could not work and back then i think we saw the internet as 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 just a blanket solution to to a lot of problems which is not very dissimilar from 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 how mobile technology was was kind of cast uh, five six seven years ago now we're becoming a little bit more realistic about that as well as we became more realistic about what the internet actually could do so, I mean, Johnny, you've seen a lot of successful companies really in their transition on, on the continent from very early, you know, seed first round to to Series A. What do you see as as the different traits in Africa between a great seed investor and a great Series A investor? Oh, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, I think a seed uh, certainly that it's two different set of skills, and a seed investor obviously needs to look. Um, for for those kind of diamonds in the rough and and finding finding them in the continent is is often difficult and I, and I guess that is where we try to to play a role with our accelerator program because often what a lot of seed investors find themselves doing is spending a lot of time with every single of the leads that that they may have that are looking good in order to kind of qualify whether or not they as an entrepreneurial team but also them as as kind of the, the product innovators have what it takes to to make the necessary pivots going going forward. Um, so having having an ability to discern that, figure that out very quickly, figure out if if this is a team that has the necessary agility, has the necessary kind of combination of of skills and and are complementary. Having that ability to do that fast certainly is is something that is that we can see with seed investors that is where they outpace a, a lot of of their kind of competing seed investors and i think for for more of a venture capital uh, venture capital outfit i think that the better ones the ones that seem very successful are the ones that are very well tuned in to the rest of the ecosystem so 
a lot of kind of the, the, the footwork that they need to do, a lot of the groundwork that they need to do is, is done through partnerships with other actors uh, in the ecosystem, either through partnerships with, with seed investors or other venture capital funds or through partnerships with, with accelerators, incubators, um, or industry organizations, um, co-working spaces and, and hubs. I think those are some of the things that we see makes for a good venture uh, venture capital fund. We see the same thing with companies looking to enter the space where um, mo- most need to partner with a local player mm. as opposed to trying to, to go at their own. Interesting to hear the parallel within the venture capital community as well. And I think, I mean, we, we've had an increasing amount, obviously an increasing amount of, of venture funds trying to set themselves up, especially in Nairobi. And a lot of the conversations, unfortunately, in, in the very beginning where they're still trying to raise their fund is very exploitive. It's very kind of taking advantage of the intermediaries on the ground who have access to potential to potential investees that they can present to their potential LPs. So you see how good we are at, at identifying talent on the continent. But then if they're lucky enough to raise that fund, don't really honor the the work or the the input that was given in that process by by the intermediaries that they've worked with. So I say that that probably goes for, in my in my opinion, a, a a bad venture capital fund. If you are successful, then honor those relationships that you've uh, that you created when you're trying to raise the fund. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I mean, I I think one of the biggest frustrations, or, or maybe a better word, is is misunderstandings of international VCs coming in is, I mean, I, I, I just think most, most venture capital funds need a longer life cycle than, yeah. than they currently have, or they are currently expecting for Africa just because, and, and you know this, right? Like business just takes so much longer. Uh, sales cycles are, yeah. you know, <laughs> we, we, we complain about long sales cycles here in, in the startup community in the U S but you know, go, go to Africa. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> It's it's not that fun. No, I mean you certainly have to be very very patient and much more patient than than you would be in in any other part of the world. Things there are great yeah. opportunities for for VCs and for funds uh, in Africa, but instead of it taking five or eight years, it'll it'll more likely take twelve to fifteen years, and you have to to understand that and respect that. One interesting thing that you mentioned there is kind of hinting that like the the, the pipeline of of deal flow isn't necessarily efficient or effective and so mm. i mean what what do you think what, what what do you think needs to happen or what what are the biggest kind of um biggest parts of like the deal flow cycle that you think falls through the cracks if, if that makes sense so i think there are, there are two answers to to that and uh, the two answers kind of fall along um <laughs> And with the risk of being politically incorrect, they probably fall along racial background. So you have your expatriate entrepreneurs who are coming in um, with a pretty good education, a pretty good network, a pretty good understanding of what needs to be communicated to to investors. And we often see that that they have an ability to kind of take care of their own growth much more than their indigenous counterparts have. And for them, having incubators and accelerators in the shape that they're used to seeing, or we're used to seeing them in Europe and North America, makes a whole lot of sense because they only need a little bit of notching, only need um, some kind of very 
superficial support in order to kind of get some of the components that they're looking at perfecting, uh, get them right in order to be ready to have deeper conversations with investors. The answer in terms of indigenous entrepreneurs is unfortunately very different. And most of that is simply because the education system across Africa is not as good as it is in, in Europe and North America. So that means most entrepreneurs are kind of coming into the fight with, with half a toolbox. So the first thing that accelerators and incubators uh, needs to do, or the entrepreneur themselves, if, if they are capable of, of doing that, is essentially fill that toolbox up before they, they get into the fight, before they figure out what is it that I need to do with my startup in order to get it ready to have these conversations with with uh, VCs. And then once they get to that point, they then also need to figure out how do I then actually communicate what it is that I need to communicate in a way so they understand me. The cultural context and kind of the, the broader market context here is very different from what most investors are used to, uh, at least the investors that are coming in from, from abroad. And getting that message across in a way that they understand if you're an indigenous entrepreneur is a lot harder, unfortunately, than if you are a European or an American entrepreneur. And that is the sad fact. But that's something that, that we work with our entrepreneurs very hard on and try and find solutions on and are very frank with, with investors as well and tell them that they have to meet us halfway. So, I mean, I, you, you mentioned communication there. Yeah. Uh, what, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what specific skills do you feel are, are most lacking on the continent when it comes to in, indigenous entrepreneurship? Uh, just, just because, I mean, co conversations around ecosystem maturity are usually focused on the metric of venture capital inflow, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily address some of the, the core challenges in the ecosystems. No, absolutely. Um, so I'd be curious to hear, hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, our observation is, and in, in especially in, in a country like Kenya, there is a, a lot more capital than there are good entrepreneurs and, and, and good startups. Um, so, so access or the availability of money is not actually the issue. It, it is when you ask the entrepreneur because they can't access it because they're not quite investment ready, uh, seen in the eyes of, of the investors. And some of the skills that they're lacking in the eyes of the investors is oftentimes it's, it's basic analytical skills. It is the ability to understand and perceive your organization, its interdependencies, as well as its interaction with the external environment, being able to, in a very structured way, analyze this in a continuous way, make decisions based on information and data rather than on, on far-flung assumptions, and be able to do that on an ongoing basis, make those changes, refinements, pivots to all parts of your organization, not just the product. A lot of entrepreneurs, especially in, in the IT scene, but, but pretty much across all the sectors that we operate with are very product focused. And even in, in the product focus, they're very, they're very widget uh, focused. They're not necessarily focused on, on what is the underlying problem that I am trying to solve for my customer. So just having the ability to kind of go three or four layers deeper than what is, what is on the surface, both in terms of what your customer need, but also what the, the underlying problem shortcoming gap challenge is in various parts of your business having having that ability to dissect that in a, a structured way is really kind of the key skill that we see are lacking think about that it is also coming up with solutions 
is pretty much at par as far as we've seen with, with entrepreneurs across the rest of the world. But then the discipline around implementation of these uh, solutions and the leadership around that is, is often something that's also lacking. So having that structure to, to how you actually go about implementing the plans, implementing strategies, capturing data in that process, using that data afterwards to, to kind of refine what it is that you're doing and improve upon, upon that. It's kind of what we also uh, see a missing. And of course, you, you do have that, – that happens across all entrepreneurial ecosystems, uh, also outside of Africa. But we do see that more pronounced here, in my opinion. One thing you've said before that I definitely want you to – or want to hear you expand on uh, is, is talking about the untapped potential in, in secondary cities across the region. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I think, I think I know what you mean by that, um, but I would love to kind of ex expand. Yeah, so I think what, what we keep finding is, I mean, Nairobi, obviously, here in Kenya, Kampala in, in Uganda, Addis Ababa in, in Ethiopia, and, and Lusaka in, in Malawi are where there is the large concentration of well-educated young people with, with a lot of ideas, a lot of entrepreneurial drive, and easier access to, to markets than in most other parts of, of those respective countries. But we keep getting surprised every time we make an effort to go to the secondary cities and look for entrepreneurs there because they have they've not really been approached before. There's there's been very few opportunities or, or programs or investments available in, in those communities. There's still a lot of kind of hidden gems that are ready for the for the taking. This year and last year, we spent quite a bit of time going to, to secondary cities and working with, with hops and community spaces to identify some of the up-and-coming entrepreneurs. And what we find in a lot of these cities is what we found when we first launched our accelerator program back in 2012 in Nairobi, where we probably had the easiest time recruiting a fantastic cohort of 17, uh, of 17 businesses. And the reason we could do that was no one else had done it before. Uh, and I think that is true for a lot of secondary cities. And often it ends up being actually more attractive um, and, and still very overlooked because obviously logistics is not always easy uh, in those secondary cities. So, Johnny, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round. Four questions of the 60 seconds each. Cool. That sound good? Yeah, I'll try. Who's an African CEO that you admire the most right now and why? I think um, Bob Collymore, um, CEO of Safaricom. He didn't always used to to be my, my cup of tea, uh, to be truthful. But I think how he's tackled his, his illness, how he has tackled coming back from, from his illness and, and just the grace and the, the humility that he's come back to uh, – to the corporate scene with uh, has been very profound, very inspiring to me. And is, it really talks about his true leadership. Outside of where you live in Nairobi, what's your favorite city in Africa to visit? Cape Town. It's a wonderful city. It has pretty much, uh, at least during the, the good months, uh, during the, the summer and not, not so much the winter. Uh, the winter can be a bit chilly and a bit rainy and a bit uh, foggy and, and not so nice. But all the other months are just offers so much nature, uh, very accessible in terms of nature, very accessible in terms of all sorts of other um, nice things, uh, restaurants and museums and whatnot. So, yeah. 
So what is your favorite resource to stay up to date on, on what's happening in Africa's tech ecosystems, whether it's a, a blog, a newsletter, uh, or a, a, any publication? I, w- I wish there was one really good source. I've, I've kind of ended up combining uh, my own on, on Flipboard. Um, I think Quartz has some pretty good articles at time. Um but Disrupt Africa, Venture Burn um, also has at, at times some good articles. Uh, so it, 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 it will have to be a mix. I don't think there is that one strong source for, for entrepreneurship or for the, for the tech scene across Africa yet. So I guess that's, that's an opportunity for someone. Interesting. That does sound like an opportunity. <laughs> and finally, what is your favorite thing about living in Nairobi? That has to be the climate. I think I've lived in many cities. Uh, Nairobi has that perfect climate for someone like me who, who, who grew up in my very young days in a very cold part of the world uh, in, in, in Denmark. It never gets too hot in Nairobi. Uh, it's always those 23 to 26 degrees pretty much year round with a, with a few exceptions here and there. And I think that that's probably what I appreciate the most. And and pretty much never a day without sun. Awesome. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Andrew, for considering me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk. That's A-N-D-B-E-R-K. To see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 